Hello, I'm Doug, and welcome to the Crew of Japan podcast, a weekly podcast where we take you on audio journeys through Japanese culture. This time on Crew of Japan podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. It's been a hot minute since we touched on a Japanese language study topic. So in today's episode, the crew got back down to business and Benkyo, specifically on the topic of kanji. With Japanese, language learners of all levels can relate to the frustration that comes along with hitting a barrier. Whether that's a confusing grammar point or retaining a vocabulary word that's new or mastering a new writing system as a whole. Well, with written Japanese, kanji falls into a little bit of everything. What does that damn character look like again? Which reading do I use? Is this even the right kanji for this word? If you study Japanese, you probably asked yourself, or your teacher, or someone on Reddit, these same questions. There are a wide variety of methods people take to study kanji. Be it repetitive writing drills, or maybe just flashcards with the readings on one side and the kanji on the other. However, today's episode is going to focus on an alternative approach. One that I attempted years back after stumbling across a Japanese language thread on an internet forum while I was bored at work during my jet days. That approach utilizes a book series called Remembering the Kanji, a three book series by Dr. James Heisig that breaks learning of the kanji up into a different way I'd never really considered before. In a Hail Mary attempt, I reached out to Dr. Heisig to see if he'd be interested in coming on the podcast and sharing some of the background on his approach to studying kanji. And to my surprise, and our great fortune, he replied back that he would be happy to come on and share with us. So we have it right here the man behind remembering the kanji, or some may call it the Heisig method, or the RTK method, sharing with us everything that we need to know. Including how the book Remembering the Kanji came to be. I called the book Adventures in Kanji Land and I sent it all, all typeset and everything already. I mean, typeset, it was done on a typewriter. I sent it to the president of the university and he went to the print department and they printed 600 copies. The basic anatomy of kanji characters. One thing I did understand was that all the characters were composed of pieces. Like primitive elements, altogether about 220 of them. Application of the Heisig method. I don't think classrooms are a good way to learn characters. You may find that you learn 20, 30 one day, you may learn 50 another day, and then you may learn five the next day. Well, everybody in the classroom is not going to go at your pace, so you really have to do it on your own. And so much more. This episode is packed with stories that will provide you with some context and background on the different and unique approach to learning kanji and how the Heisig method came to be. So let's just get into the interview with Dr. James Heising. All right, and we are back with our podcast episode on language. And I know a lot of our listeners love our Japanese language episodes. So、um, we, we went a different direction from our usual episodes. We, we've covered studying language through video games, studying language through literature, we've studied pitch accent and talked about a variety of topics, but we haven't really talked about written Japanese,、uh, specifically kanji. So we decided to, yeah, right. So we, we've decided to reach out and we have with us today、uh, Professor Emeritus at Nanzan Institute for Religion and Culture, Dr. Jim Heisig. Hi, hello. Awesome. And then we have Jen. Hey, Jen. Yes, hello. So, one thing obviously, Dr. Heisig is a professor of religion and philosophy, but many language learners. Uh, specifically, Japanese language learners know of Dr. Heisig from his book, Remembering the Kanji, which I personally had used back in 2007 and 2008 when I was studying a lot more fervently than I am now.、Uh, <laughs> so, before we get started,、um, Dr. Heisig, I would want to just give you an opportunity just to introduce yourself and say hi. 
Um, and then we can just kind of jump into our, our conversation. So, hello everyone. I think um, I've been introduced enough. You can call me Jim if you want. It's a little shorter and simpler. All right. <laughs> I'm sitting in my um, room here in Nagoya, Japan, where I've been for the last oh, 43 years or so. Not in my room all the time, but uh, <laughs> in Japan anyway. So, so I look forward to your podcast. Thanks for inviting me. No, thank you for getting back to us. And, and we've been talking back and forth probably for the last year. And I apologize for <laughs> for things falling off a little bit in, along the way. But uh, we're so excited to have you here with us today and uh, just to talk kanji and, and other things. But before we get to that, Jen, how are you doing? I'm good. No, I just wanted to say, yeah, we really do appreciate you coming, especially since our past co-host, Nigel, he really wanted to do a kanji episode. So this one's for you, Nigel. Yeah, he, he, he was an avid language learner. He loves studying languages. So these episodes are always a, one of his favorites. But before we jump into that meat and bones of our uh, episode, uh, one question we ask a lot of our guests is if they have a connection to New Orleans. You know, if you've been before, you know, what's your favorite memory? But if you haven't, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear New Orleans? Well, my mother was raised in New Orleans as a young girl. Oh, wow. Oh, no nice. way. In, in Metairie. Oh, oh hey. yeah, that's your head. Yes, yes. I, I grew up in Metairie too, actually. So, so yeah, we all learned to swear in Creole when we were young. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna have to ask you off the call where in Metairie, because I, you know, my my grandparents all grew up in this area. So, uh, you know, Metairie is a small small community. So it is. <laughs> Especially, it is. Yeah. But she learned good cooking there, and that's uh, oh, maybe the yeah. most important thing for us. Yeah. You'll you'll pick that up of in course. New Orleans for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, of course. So in terms of uh, your Japan journey, you know, your mom grew up here. But how did you become interested in Japan? How did you eventually end up getting to Japan? Oh, oh. um, After I finished my my doctoral work in Cambridge in England, I returned to Chicago and taught there in graduate school and spent a half a year in Chicago and a half a year in Mexico City. I was teaching in graduate schools there. While I was in Mexico City, I got an invitation from Japan for a consultation on a new institute they wanted to begin. It was after the time of the Vatican Council, and the president of the university, a Catholic university in Nagoya, decided that more important than increasing the membership of the church, getting converts and so, it was to talk with other religions, to dialogue with them, see what we can learn from each other. So we convert ourselves to the religions of Japan. And to this end, he wanted to start an institute for religion and culture, to find a language for dialogue, because the only language the Christians had was the language of catechism and doctrine, and the language of conversion and apologetics. But he thought we needed a new language. It was a very simple idea. And I was one of the people invited to Japan to um, do the consultation. And at the time the invitation came, I was actually living in in Nicaragua, on the island of Solentiname, with the Sandinistas, right before the revolution. Oh, wow. Okay. That's, wow. A, that's a long story. But yeah. I took the trip to Japan, and afterwards, um, maybe a year later, when the institute was completed, I was invited to come and help begin it, and knowing nothing at all about Japan. <laughs> and within a few months, I came to Japan, and I've been there ever since. Wow. Yeah. Now you said you're you're stationed in Nagoya, but have you had the chance over, you know, the many years that you've stayed in Japan? Have you had the chance to like travel around, or did you always just uh, stay in Nagoya? You know, um, 
How deep have you feel that you've gotten into the culture? Well, I've traveled everywhere but Okinawa. That's my one huh? regret. But oh. yes, I've been up and down. Uh, yes. I once hitchhiked around the island of Hokkaido. Oh, nice. Yeah. Incredible. Uh, the weather, I mean, we, we, we did an episode about Hokkaido and just talking about it, it's, it's one of those places that I've never been to and I really want to check it out. Uh, wonderful, yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. H- have you ever done the, uh, the hike around Shikoku? No, the, no. The, Hen, uh, the Henro pilgrimage. The 88 pilgrimages. No, I haven't done that either. No. Yeah. Oh, you've done it. Oh, my. Yeah, I've done it once. <laughs> you you walked? Uh, a little bit. I, I hitchhiked and did a little uh-huh. bit of With walk in. And, oh, yeah, good. Yeah. A variety yeah. of stuff. It was it was yeah. incredible. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, that was, that was nice. great. So when you got to Japan, did you ever envision yourself staying as long as you did? No, this was one of the problems. Um, when I was invited to come, I was told I would have to stay at least five years. And I had really okay. never lived five years in a single place in my life. <laughs> and I couldn't, um, I couldn't imagine it at the time. This was one of the reasons that I didn't take a permanent job in Chicago or other places I was invited because I didn't really want to, to stick uh, around with a, an academic career in a single institution. Sure. So, um, no, I had no idea that I'd be staying this long. Uh, it was a big surprise to me. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's, that's crazy, though. I mean, I, I just, like, what was, was there one thing in particular that kept you staying there? Like, along the, like, along the way, like, I'm sure, like, as you got through that first year, you got a little homesick or something. But, like, was there something that kind of kept pulling you back to stay in Japan? I, you know, I really never thought about it. It just kind of happened rather naturally. Yeah. And as a member of the Institute, I've been free to travel a lot. So I continued to go to South America, to North America, and, and then to Europe. I took a sabbatical in, um, in the year 1999 in Barcelona in Spain. But otherwise, I've been here the whole time. And as I say, I have the freedom to travel. So Japan is a wonderful place to live. And um, it's the first time I've really had a home where I've stayed for more than three or four years at a time. So it just sort of naturally sunk roots, I guess. Yeah, that's, that's so cool. Now, prior to moving to Japan, did you even study Japanese? No, I knew nothing about Japanese and Chinese. <laughs> I read books uh, about Japan, about China, I read some philosophy books and some culture books. But no, I knew nothing at all. Nothing at all. And the first time I came to Japan, actually, I was in a coffee shop and had a morning set. And um, there were apples and fruit over on the counter. And I asked, pointed, and they brought me an apple. And I asked the the waitress, could you peel this for me? And she responded, not understanding what I was saying. And I said, could you kind of peel it? And she looked at me, not understanding. And (laughs) so then I began with my first Japanese sentence. I said... Kimono, sayonara. And she says, oh, I got it. And she took the paring knife and peeled it for me. So that was my beginning in Japanese. (laughs) (laughs) What a phrase to learn. (laughs) (laughs) Kimono can mean a lot of different things. That really can. It's a good thing she understood it correctly. Yes, yes. Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, like... So was your when you were learning did did it was it just more of like you learned organically or did they have classes that you were able to take when you were well, doing it when at your I school? arrived in Japan I found out I'd been enrolled in a language school in Kamakura 
that okay. uh, the Jesuits from Sofia actually ran. Oh, it was right. supposed to be one of the best language schools at the time. But on the way to Japan, I stopped in Bangladesh. Right, It was right after the floods and um, saw a friend there. And he took me around and they brought me to a, a big Catholic seminary there and asked me to give a talk on South America, liberation theology, all those things. Mm-hmm. And then they asked me to give another talk and another one. So I arrived in Japan a month late only to find out I'd been enrolled in this school and was missing classes. Oh, no. <laughs> well, I really wasn't interested in going to school, but they had a, they paid for me, and it was a residential school, so I went. Fortunately, the head of the school was from um, the Basque lands of northern Spain, where I had lived when I was younger, and I told him I really didn't want to go to class, but this seemed like a nice place to, to study. I said I kind of agreed with something Dante is supposed to have said, which is the only languages to learn in school are the dead ones. <laughs> and um, he agreed. He told me, look, you have some languages under your belt, so you can study on your own. And if you want to go to class, you can go. Otherwise, we won't charge you tuition. We'll just charge you the rent. And so that's pretty much the way I began. I took the two-volume um grammar that they had and uh, went through the whole thing very carefully, not memorizing any words, but trying to understand how the language was structured, to understand the grammar of the language. Yeah. And that took me about a month in just doing it on my own. And as I went down to lunch in the cafeteria and played volleyball afterwards with the teachers and the students, everyone was telling me, you have to come to class, you have to come to class, you know, you, you, you have to start learning the kanji. This is the most difficult part. And I told them, well, when I finish the grammar, I'll have a look at the kanji. So when I did finish the grammar, I went to the library and got the kanji books out and had a look at them. And I noticed something strange, which was that the first 30, 40, 50 pages of the books were all black on the edge from having been turned again and again. And the rest of the book might as well have been a French book where the edges were never cut. So people only got part of the way through the characters. So I went down to see the teachers and asked them how many characters they teach during their two-year course. And they said, well, we hope to have the students graduate with 880. Most of the students never get there, but, you know, we thought that's kind of our goal. And I said, 880? First of all, two years is a very long time. Secondly, that means I could only read at the level of a fifth grader. Right. I, you know, I need, I need them all or I don't need any of them. And they said, well, you should just begin. And I said, well, I'm going to think about this. So then I went to Tokyo, took a train to Tokyo and went to the Naganuma School. This was a famous school that was producing textbooks and I uh, thought, well, maybe their teachers have a different method. So I went to the cafeteria, talked to the students and the teachers, and it was pretty much the same story that foreigners don't really you know, need to learn all those characters and it's not really possible and so forth. So it was a little distressing. I went home and I got a copy of this big French book on the history of the kanji by a man named Weigel. And I spent one night reading through the thing. It was about 400 pages, understanding very little of it. <clears throat> but one thing I did understand was that all the characters were composed of pieces, like primitive elements, altogether about 220 of them. The second important thing I learned is that every 200 years, 300 years, from way before the Christian era, the common era, the characters had been revised. And they were always revised according to principles to make them more logical. So I thought, if this is a logical part of the language, maybe I should begin with this. It must be the simplest thing to learn if it's rational and logical. 
Then I thought to myself, well, the Chinese who come into Japanese, they already know what the characters mean and they know how to write them. All they have to learn is how to say them in Japanese. They come with an advantage. Whereas when we come in, we have two separate things to learn. One, which is straight brute memory. How do you pronounce these things? And the other, which is rational, but trot as brute memory, which is how to write them.、Mm-hmm. And I've always thought that there are two major obstacles, not always, but it's something that came to me in time. The two major obstacles to learning to write the Japanese characters with native fluency, the fluency of a high school graduate, knowing the basic characters. The first obstacle is classrooms, because not everybody works at the same pace. We can talk about this later. The second、uh, obstacle, which is unfortunately a universal obstacle, is Japanese teachers. A few years ago in Nagoya, I gave an address to the National Congress of Kanji Teachers, and I suggested to them that maybe they should find another job. <laughs> I asked point blank, and some of you have been teaching for 30, 40 years, I understand. How many of you have ever had a foreign adult that you've been able to teach to write with high school fluency the basic Japanese characters? And no one raised their hand. And I said, Well, see what I mean? And I think the reason that you're an obstacle to learning is this. As teachers, we know what we do when someone asks a question we don't understand. We change the question and answer with an answer that we have prepared. <laughs> so if I come to a Japanese teacher and say, I'm an adult, I know how to learn, but I don't know any characters, they have no idea what that's like. So they translate the question into, he's like I was when I was five and a half or six years old. So they teach you then to do what they did. Tori, 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 tori. You write the character over and over again until it becomes a muscle memory, right? With a few hints、yeah. along the way. But basically, because children are good imitators,、yeah. but they're poor learners. Children can't abstract. They can learn mathematical tables six times six is 36, seven times seven is 49. But if you say 49 divided by X equal, they don't get that until the age of eight or nine when they can abstract properly. But since I know how to abstract and I can learn on principles, why should I study the characters as if I were a child? So, my, my idea was this since the characters are made of all these pieces, and I had a kind of list of the basic pieces, I'm going to go through and begin with the most basic pieces and then gradually build it up. And I'll make the pieces into a kind of alphabet, not an alphabet of sounds, but an alphabet of images. And then I played with the images with playful stories. And by the end of exactly 30 days, I had learned to write the Joyo Kanji. Well, actually, I learned 2044. I learned a few more than I needed. The teachers, meantime, were bugging me to come to class, as were the other students were teasing me for studying on my own. But when I finished and the word got around, the teachers asked me to come to their room. <laughs> This was very funny to come to their room after lunch. And I went in there, and、uh, there was one of the teachers that spoke English, Oguchi Sensei was her name, and she said, They want to know why you're not coming to class. And I told them, Well, I just was studying the characters on my own. And they said, And we heard that you finished the characters. I said, Yes. And they said, You mean you can write? Although they, I said, Yes. I said, Well, I think so. So they put me in front of a blackboard, and they <laughs> said, Okay, write Inu. And I said, I, I don't know what Inu means. 
and they mumble mumbled among themselves. And Oguchi said, you've been here for two months and the teachers are worried that you don't know the basic word for dog. <laughs> I said, well, I'm going to do vocabulary later, but if you give me the words in English, I can write them. So I wrote dog on the board. And then they said cow and someone said horse. And someone said cat, and I wrote cat. And then they began to mumble among themselves. And I said, did I make a mistake? And they said, no, but that's not on the list. I said, yeah, I know, but I learned a few more along the way. So it was, it was simple. <laughs> I picked some others up as I needed them. So they started throwing out all these English words they knew. And I'm writing characters all over the board. And they asked me to come back after volleyball in the afternoon. So I didn't know what it meant, but I came back after volleyball and they decided that I had a photographic memory and that uh, it would fade in time and that uh, this would discourage the other students. And I said, no, 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 my memory is not photographic. It's Polaroid, just like the rest of yours. You know, there's no film, there's nothing <laughs> left, there's nothing stored. But I, I saw that it was beginning to cause some problems. And meantime, there was a small group of five or six Mexicans studying in the language school. And they were interested in learning the characters and having trouble with the English. So I started translating some of my stories and passing them around on little index cards. And this was seemed like it was undercutting the teachers and I was worried about what I was going to do. That night, that very night, I got a telephone call from the president of Nanzan University asking me to come to Nanzan, which I did. And we went into his room. He sat behind his big oak desk, looked at me and said, look, I went to great trouble to bring you here to Japan. We put you in uh, what we think is the best language school in Japan. You're studying on your own. And now we hear that you've claimed you've learned to write all the characters. I don't know any foreigner in Japan who's ever been able to do that. So look, why don't you just stop this nonsense and go to class? <laughs> and I said, well, actually, I did learn to write them. And it's really quite simple if you put your mind to it. And he said, I thought you'd say that. So he pushed a buzzer under his desk and the secretary rolled in a big blackboard with three language teachers. Went through the whole thing again. Man, they keep <laughs> testing you. And it was hilarious. And then they left and he got from behind his desk, came over to the chairs, ordered some tea and said, how did you do that? <laughs> he was German and had lived in Japan many years. He was a noted author on Japanese entrepreneurship in the Meiji period. And I told him it's really quite simple. And I began to explain. And he says, you know, you should write a book about it. And I said, oh, I don't know. I said, maybe someday. He said, no, now. I said, look, I don't even know how to say dog and cat. How am I going to spend my time writing a book? I need to learn the language. He said, no, 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 you should stop everything and write a book. And I was a little <laughs> discouraged, but I went back and decided, okay, I'll, I'll write a book. So I wrote this book. I scissors and pasted it onto big sheets of paper, drew all the characters in. That was before computers, so I did everything on a typewriter. And that took one month, exactly a month. So my third month in Japan, I wrote the book. Really? <laughs> Everything was in my head, but I had to figure out how to write it all. And it seemed rather silly to me along the way. You know, all these stories, and they're just jokes. And I had to clean a lot of them up for public consumption, of course. You know, when you get into the imagination, your mind can go all sorts of um, unproductive oh, yeah. directions. So I wrote a preface to it and then left my name off. I called the book Adventures in Kanji Land, and I sent it all, all typeset and everything already. I mean, typeset, it was done on a typewriter. I sent it to the president of the university, and he went to the print department, and they printed 600 copies. 
Then he called me up and said, uh, this was in January sometime, I guess. He called me up and said, the books are printed. How are we going to sell them? I said, you're asking me. I've, I've just got <laughs> here. You know, you've been here your whole life. So I took a copy and went down to Tuttle's. You know, Tuttle's of Vermont had uh, started an office in Tokyo. And Mr. and Mrs. Tuttle, had, as missionaries, had picked up a, an orphan from the war named Iwamoto Keiko, raised her partly in America, partly in Japan, and she was now the president of the company. So I just walked in without an appointment, knocked on her door, and she received me very kindly. And I told her that, passed her a copy of the book and told her that we would like to sell these. And she said, well, what is this? And I explained. And she said, you mean you can write? I said, yes, I, I think so. I think I remember them all. So she said, can you write my name? And I said, sure, but you have to tell me in English words. I haven't got to Japanese vocabulary yet. And she laughed and said, okay, my name is Iwamoto. So a rock. So I wrote a rock. No, no, like a big boulder. Okay, okay, yeah, you got it. And now a book or so. I wrote moto, book. And keiko, k. what does that mean? She says, it means like happy. So I wrote happy. She says, no, 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 uh, try joyful. And so she's giving me all the synonyms she can think of in English, writing five or six characters. Finally, I got the right one. And she said, how did you do that? I said, it's in the book. She said, okay, I'll sell them for you. <laughs> I have the book somewhere. Uh, afterwards, when we're done, I'll, I'll bring a I'll run upstairs and get a copy so you can see what it looks like. It's kind okay. of funny. Yeah. You, you might enjoy it. So I said, you contact the president of Nanzan, find out what it costs him to print it. And if you can sell the copies, you keep what you want, but give the money for the, the print cost back to the president. And she agreed. And about six weeks later, I got a phone call that the book is sold out and can we make a proper one? But typesetting would be, this was pre-computer typesetting, would cost about $10,000. So we're willing to make the investment. I said, no, no, that seems excessive now. So maybe, maybe in the future I'll do something. So I put it in my bottom drawer, went back to the school. And by this time I realized that the publication of the book and everything was causing problems. So I went to Nagano Prefecture and moved into the house of the older sister of the husband of the secretary of the Institute. The Institute had just begun. They didn't have any books in the library. They didn't have any staff, but they had a one young secretary there. And she volunteered that I would um, go to stay with that family if I wanted. I thought this was perfect. So at the foot of the Japanese Alps, the little town of Omachi, Shinano Omachi, I was in Tokamachi and I moved in with a family that had two young children. Tomoko was five and her brother Masahiro was nine. And there I learned to speak. Children, of course, being very good teachers, they make fun of you when you make a mistake. They don't tell you how joyful you are. Right? Yeah. Oh, I know. Oh, I know. <laughs> um, I joined the, the local baseball team in the town. I played with the children. I read their textbooks. And um, yeah, I stayed there for several months. I think two and a half, three months, something like that. And um, when the time came to leave, um, Tomoko got out of the bath and the mother was drying her off. And she says, why do we have cake tonight? She says, well, because Jim-san is going to leave. And she says, he can't leave. You know, I've become kind of part of the family. And she says, well, yes, he has to go on to his work. And she says, no, 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 he has to stay. She said, well, he's not a member of the family. And Tomoko began to cry. And she says, I want him to be part of the family. What can I do? And the mother says, well, you could do konyaku. She says, what's that mean? 
She says, that means like you get engaged to get married. Oh, she says, that's a good idea. So she says, will you marry me? <laughs> <laughs> so we locked our little fingers. And I said, yes, of course. And the next day, I wrote a letter to my mother, a postcard, saying I met this absolutely lovely Japanese girl and we've decided to get married. And a week <laughs> later, I wrote her a proper letter to explain everything that had happened. <laughs> and 20 years later, when Tomoko was married, uh, of course, I went up to the wedding and all the kids there knew the story. They all, is that the one? Is that the one? They kept asking. All her friends, they all knew <laughs> that I had been the one that she got engaged to first. And her husband was a good sport about it. So <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> That's how I, um, how I learned I was with the children. And while I was living there, I wrote the second volume on trying to rationalize what I could of the sound system of the Japanese. But basically, okay. that's... That's it. So I had then made a um, promise to go to teach in Norfolk, Virginia, at Old Dominion University to teach a summer course uh, before leaving for Japan. So I left in May and spent June, July, and part of August in Old Dominion, and then came back and joined the staff of the Institute. So about nine, 10 months after I arrived in Japan, I was working at the Institute. So that's how it happened. Sorry, that it's was a the, long The answer. origin story. No, no, that's like the origin story of your Yeah, no, book. that's... <laughs> yeah, that's good to have. That's really cool. But through your story, I'm I'm curious, you know, because it doesn't sound like, at least from what you revealed, there was no like struggle. So like, did you not have any like problems with any aspects of the language, or was there an aspect of the language that kind of gave you some difficulty, and you had to kind of like really wow, get through? That's a good question. You know, I. Uh... I suppose there was. Um, I don't have any clear memory of it. I suppose there was some problem. When I began to read, I um, got books from the husband of the family I was staying in. The first book I read actually was How to Become mm -hmm. Good in Mahjong, because he loved to play Mahjong, <laughs> so I had to read that. <laughs> yeah, I think when I, when I started reading books on philosophy, I realized there's a specialized vocabulary for each field and area you go into. So I became familiar with philosophical vocabulary. And then when I started reading novels, I realized that's a completely different style. And so that was a bit of a challenge, learning to read other things like that. And I always read the newspaper. That was kind of the simplest thing to read because, well, it's... It's kind of straightforward. Only use the basic characters, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, Japanese is uh, a language with a very simple grammar, but a language that has a lot of idioms, things that just have to be learned, that can't be translated. For yeah. example, it's grammatically yeah. correct to say yoiasa, but everybody says ohayo gozaimasu. Right, right. right. Oh, and like in English, it's the same way. English has a very simple grammar. But why do we make the bed and do the dishes? Why don't we do the beds and make the dishes? You know, these are things you have to learn. Yeah. So every day, really, even now, I still pick up, you know, idioms and, and uh, pick up usage that, uh, you know, isn't um, not part of the grammar, just part of the general culture of the language. So, yeah, maybe that's the Yeah, I, I found that, like, hmm. especially with, like, online culture and a lot of different social media and all that stuff, there's, like, kind of the language itself is evolving to incorporate different words, like, some of them katakanaized words, you know, borrowed mm -hmm. words into like making into just tacking on a aru at the end of the katakana word yeah, yeah. and to make it like a verb, right? To do something. Huh. So yeah it's, yeah, it's it's definitely something that I've noticed because I pick up, you know, I, I follow some stuff on Twitter and, you know, I find new words out every day just that way. That's something interesting that so many of the textbooks that people show me use Western grammatical concepts like adjectives and nouns and participles and verbs and 
that doesn't quite work in Japanese, even though mm -hmm. most of the textbooks use it that way. In Chinese, of course, any word, any given character can be any part of speech almost. And yeah. in Japanese, I mean, adjectives and verbs functions this function the same. They don't use prepositions the way we do. They put verbs together instead of prepositions. You know? So mm -hmm. to take up in Japanese would be toriageru. You know, you use two verbs together instead of come in, come out, come over, come through. For our English speaker, then, it's um, often difficult because the parts of speech are stuck in your mind and you wonder what part of speech something is. Turn things into participles that aren't really, don't really function the same as participles and so forth. Yeah, you lose a lot, if, especially if you try to directly translate what's in Japanese into English and vice versa. If you're trying to directly translate your English yeah. sentence into that, it yeah. doesn't, I mean, I think the meaning go, gets across sometimes, mm -hmm. but sometimes it gets convoluted, yeah. you know, it, or it just mm -hmm. sounds weird. Yeah. Yeah. I did all the time. My wife could say, what are you trying to say? Just say it in English. <laughs> like, like, <what> trying <laughs> but having the characters it gives you the advantage of being like a Chinese coming to the language. All it you does. have to do is it learn does. the pronunciations. You, you kind of know what they sound like in your own language. So yeah. even though it seems offensive to people to have English readings for Chinese characters, it's just um, a technique. And then over the course of time, motor memory takes over. I mean, I don't remember most of the stories that I invented anymore. Yeah. I don't need them. Yeah. So so we kind of talked about your, your origin story for remembering the kanji, uh, volumes one and volume two. But the kanji that are covered in the most, I guess, most recent volumes is it just the Joyo, like the two, is it 2020? How many is it nowadays? I can't I forget I, you know, I don't the exact know. number, but I don't know. Yeah. They added another 196 in 2010, 2011. Yeah. Okay. Maybe that's so what I'm thinking. It's somewhere books, in that. Books. Yeah. Uh -huh. But it, so it basically covers the Joyo kanji, the basic, yes. everything you need to read. A newspaper. And then maybe another 50, another 40 more or something like that. that I okay. And, and so that your second volume, after you complete the first one, where it's just your stories that help you to remember a way to remember how to understand the meanings of those characters. Number two is where you kind of apply the sound to that character. Is that correct? Uh, yes, there are certain um, pieces that appear, certain primitive elements or characters that when they appear in a character, um, give it um, a uniform sound. Okay. So for example, the character for Naka, for Chu, Mm -hmm. Whenever that appears in another character, that character is always read Chu. Right. And so I call those pure groups. And there are other groups where there's two sets of me, two sets of readings, mm -hmm. like Mesu, Sho. It's read Sho in all the other characters except for one where it's read Cho. So they call those mixed groups. And then okay. there was the Popuri. So you could learn about half the readings by learning signal primitives. These are just the Chinese readings. The Japanese, that's more root memory. Yeah. Okay. As you sort of kind of mentioned in your, well, in your own experience uh, with your story ahead of time, but like, what are the benefits of learning the meaning of the kanji ahead of actually reading the kanji? So, you know, yeah. remembering the kanji volume one versus remembering the kanji volume two. Like learning two. it in that order. I think it's, um, it's really hard to do two separate things with yeah. your brain at the same time, to learn the pronunciation and the reading at the same time. The pronunciation, as I said, is rational. Mm -hmm. You can use the left side of your brain for that. The readings are completely irrational, have to be brute memorized 
and it slows you down when you're trying to do two different uh, mental functions at the same time for one character. So the benefit of learning to write first is that it's completely rational, the organization. You can learn it by principles simply, and you can enter with the advantage of a Chinese who knows the characters. So why not learn the simplest thing first and the thing that's rational? Of course, it takes time and it means you you have to quit school. I often get letters from people saying, well, how can I learn these um, in school? Um, Because the classroom gives me the most useful characters and some of the most useful characters don't appear till the end of your book. And I tell them, well, uh, you know, just quit class. Well, I can't because I have a scholarship and I can't flunk out. And I know. Yeah. So then they come back and say, do you have any other advice? I said, well, I don't think classrooms are a good way to learn characters. You may find that you learn 20, 30 one day. You may learn 50 another day. And then you may learn five the next day. Well, everybody in the classroom is not going to go at your pace. So you really have to do it on your own. But if you have to go to class, um, then my only remaining recommendation is don't study for your tests. The point of a test is not to grade you in comparison with the other students in the class. The point of a test is to find out what you know. And you're never going to know what you know if you cram the night before. It's true. And then they come back and say, I I have to because I I have to keep my grades up. I can't not study for a test. And I said, well, that's the end of my advice. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, there's an interesting story about this. We have a language program at Nanzan University. And about 15, 20 years ago, two of us from the Institute used to play basketball with the foreign students um, every Thursday. And one of the students had this idea that he wanted to use the kanji book and learn all the kanji after the courses were over. They had a month. The courses ended in May. They had another month. And um, I kept telling him, uh, you know, forget about it. It's, it's like eight hours a day for 30 days. That's the way I did it. You know, 30 days, are you sure? You know, give it up. But he kept coming week after week saying, you know, I, I really want to do this. So he got one, two, three, four other people and said, there's five of us now and we want to do it. Will you help us? I said, well, it's main, mainly self-teaching, but if you want to come to the Institute, you can use the offices that are available and keep quiet. And um, if you get stuck, I'll help you. So they came. Two of them were Buddhist nuns who were living at a nearby um, monastery one of them went on to become the head of the Soto nuns in America and the other the head of the Soto nuns in Brazil. But they had been, you know, studying the language but never really learned to read and write. Anyway, we, we met. I spent an hour telling them a little bit about the history of the characters and then they were off on their own. And after two weeks, one of them decided that it was a good experience, but he really got an offer to join a band. And so he was going to give up and he left. And in the middle of the next week, the second one said that it was just too much of a strain for him. And he was going to go up to Hokkaido and um, travel around Japan a bit before he went home. But thank you and so forth. And then the third week, the two nuns gave up. They said, this is just too much for us, but uh, thank you. And we'll try to study on our own later, more slowly. (laughs) And then the one man that was left, Robert, he said, how can I, how can I carry on? Everybody's leaving. And these nuns, if the nuns don't have the discipline to finish it, how can I? I mean, look at them. They get up at five in the morning. They meditate every day for an hour. They live a very rigorous life. 
And I said, nuns? Discipline? Whatever gave you that idea? Nuns don't have discipline. They have routine. And routine is the biggest obstacle to discipline because it comes from without. Discipline comes from within. Ah, uh, yeah. So he bought it and he continued. <laughs> and after exactly 30 days, he came to my office and said, well, I finished the book. So I got a colleague of mine who'd been born and raised in Japan, the two of us. Uh, he's uh, from American uh, parents. And we brought him to the blackboard and we must have thrown out 800 keywords and he only missed two or three. Nice. And he was so happy. He said, I can do it. I can do it. I, I can do anything. You know, he's so happy. He went home, finished school. He was going to drop out of university. He didn't know why he was in university. He went, finished, went into law school and got his law degree, came back to Japan, up to his neck in debts, of course. <laughs> eager to find some work. And after fumbling around for a while at language teaching, he began telemarketing in Japan, which is oh, a very okay. small amount of money and went on to become one of the richest men in Japan. Oh, wow. And after a few years, he called me once to his house and said that he was donating a million dollars to the Institute to set up a chair for Dialogue Among Religions East and West. Oh, that's great. Nice. Yeah. So, so just, just kind of give him that little, you know, push. It's like everyone's yes, just kind of the discipline yes. talk really kind of changed his yes. life. Yeah. Yeah. So the kanji book has been very successful that way. Yeah. <laughs> Another success story, almost success story, is that about 15 years ago, I got a letter from a woman in India saying that she had been working her way through the book. And she decided that I was a perfect match. And she had a dowry all prepared. And would I come and join her? family and be married. I thought, what a nice <laughs> thing to say. <laughs> you get proposals from kids, from people in India, <laughs> everybody. Anyway, yeah. So. <laughs> so, no, I, I wish I could say that I, uh, I was one of those ones that had the discipline, the inner discipline to finish. But I, I with where, the way I was studying in the setup, I only was able to get through a portion. But I will. I, I, I did learn a lot, though, going through it. So it was it was fun, too. Like it just I think definitely most gave me do that. They do it at their own pace, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think one of the big things though that I used that I might take away from the book was the primitives and how those kind of helped even to this day I remember like getsu means like organ or like piece of the body or yeah, you know like yeah. the like the, those yeah. kind of things. You know, even though it's the kanji for moon, mm. but in in a primitive form, it could be mm -hmm. mean a piece it of It has other meanings. Body. Yes, yes. Right. So like, even to this day, that was what studied 14 years ago. I still remember the, those little pieces here and there. Mm -hmm. But, you know, for those who maybe study kanji, how would you differentiate between the primitives versus radicals? Are they are they the same thing? Because I know some people use them interchangeably when like kind of discussing or talk, no. talking about kanji. No, no. The radicals are for <clears throat> dictionary organization purposes. Okay. And of course, they have etymological reasons as well. But there are many more primitives that aren't radicals. Okay. So all of the radicals are primitives. And actually, any character can become a primitive for another character. So no, they're not exactly the same. Yeah. They're okay. Yeah, because I think that was that was one of the things in the beginning. I was calling the primitives radicals. And I mean, again, mm -hmm. like you said, there's some that go hand in hand that are both. But, you know, it's not always the case. Well, to give you an example, we talked about how the kanji were rationalized over time. And you talked about moon and flesh. Moon are part of the body. Well, actually, the, the character for Niku mm -hmm. used to be a radical oh, okay. on the left. But then it was abbreviated yep. in one of the reformations to take the form of moon. Oh, so okay. That was the principle. That's why it has the double meaning. 
Yeah, and that makes sense. I, I, I think maybe I, maybe I saw that in the book. Was that in the book? I think that was in the no, book. I don't think so. Probably maybe not. not. Okay, no. maybe I'm just. I, uh... I didn't do too much etymology. <laughs> it's all just it was fun and games. It's really I interesting. Mean, it's really yeah. it's really cool dissecting you know that like the history of the mm. characters and stuff too. It's really it's, cool. It's amazing. Yes. One other book that you had that came out, I think it was ap- well after Remembering the Kanji Volumes 1, 2, and then the 3 was for the, the Jokyu, right? Like the high level, like uh-huh. higher, you know, beyond the Joyo mm. of Kanji. There was a book called Remembering the Kana, which ah, adapts yes. the same type of methodology, but mm-hmm. to Hiragana and Katakana. Yeah. Um, is that something that you, did you apply that yourself when you were studying like the, the, the Kana? Yes, many people were writing letters and saying, could you help us with the Kana? And I didn't think it was possible, but somehow I managed to do it. So I did it with the hiragana. And then there was a, a professor in South Africa, Helmut Morsbach, who was teaching um, linguistics and had okay. married a Japanese woman. And he um, had always had trouble when he came to Japan learning to write the kana, the hiragana. And he kind of gave up. And then he saw this book in a bookstore, remembering the kana, how to learn in in three hours each, three hours, three hours yeah. something like that. Yeah. So he went and bought the book and he photocopied it uh, for his entire class of Introduction to Linguistics. And he went into the classroom and said, you've seen these advertisements, learn to speak Russian like a native in 14 days, uh, Berlitz commercials yeah. and so. Yeah. And he said, now here's another silly example of that, how to write the hiragana in three hours. Of course, it's impossible, but I want you to take this home, these notes, and come back, and next week we'll talk about why it's impossible to do this, and we'll find the linguistic principles for why you shouldn't buy this hype about learning a language in such short time. So the next week, the students came back, and he asked them, how many of you read the book? And they all raised their hands. And how many of you learned to write the hiragana? And they all raised their hands. And he said, and how many of you managed to do it in three hours? And about three quarters of the people raised their hands. And he said, class dismissed. (laughs) And he went and he wrote me a letter. He said, I just dismissed my class. Here's what happened. Uh, I would like to meet you. And I said, well, next time you come to Japan. And he came to Japan with he and his wife. And he said, why don't you do a book on the katakana? I said, ah, you know. I said, why don't you do it? You're a linguist. You know about these things. He said, well, I'll give it a try. So he did. He gave it a try, and it was a bit um, over the top, uh, too rational. But he came back with his wife, and we redid the book together and typeset it, and that became the Katakana book. Oh, cool. Yeah. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. That's, I mean, like, this kind of stuff with studying, like, characters and kanji and and the written alphabet in general, it's it's just such an adventure. Everyone's adventure is different. Mm. So I know we're kind of getting closer to the end of the, the episode, but we had a couple like kind of like more fun questions. Mm-hmm. And the one I had for you was, what was your favorite, if you, if you remember off the top of your head, if you don't, that's okay. But one of your favorite mnemonic-based stories that you used to put together a particular kanji? Ah, uh, no question about it. Uh, it's the character for nose. Okay. Okay. Nose begins with um, a piece, a primitive element that means a drop, a drop of uh-huh. And below it is the character for I, for an I. Yeah. And when we used it as a primitive element in other characters, we said eyeball, just to make it really visual, okay? Mm-hmm. And below that is the character for rice field, which we also gave a secondary meaning of brains, 
because it's part of the character for Komakai. And it was actually, etymologically, it was a, kind of a picture of the drawing of your, your brains with the top of your skull taken off, you know, so. And below that, okay. uh, the character for two hands outstretched or carrying something. Now, the first two characters, the drop of and the eyeball together, are the character for oneself, G, oneself. Okay, yeah. And which is the little drop next to the eyeballs, right? The nose. Mm -hmm. So I used it as a primitive element, meaning nose. And it, the nose has to do with oneself because when the Japanese point to themselves, they don't pat their chest. They put their point index their finger nose. up to their nose, right? Yes. So anyway, we have a character for primitive element for nose. But as a primitive element, I tended to use nostrils instead of nose. Mm -hmm. So we have nostrils, brain, and two hands. And this is the, the full character for nose. So I imagined, this is really gruesome, but I imagined taking my two hands and running them up the nostrils, grabbing hold of the brains and pulling them out. <laughs> and at the moment of pulling them out, you have, you have that character. That's exactly what you see. <laughs> and you only have to do it once. You don't have to write it over and over again. It's yours for life. <laughs> yeah, you just remember. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite one. <laughs> well, another favorite we want to hear from you is, you know, if you had to pick one kanji that's your all-time favorite, whether it's, you know, the appearance of the kanji, maybe the meaning or its usage, you know, what would it be? You know, the character I like to draw best is the character for Wade, for I, for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just, I just like the feeling of the movements. They're so unpredictable and just, yeah. Oh, I love that. that. That's my yeah. favorite. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Great. And so now that we kind of got uh, your favorites, you know, we want to wrap up the um, episode and give you your day back. What advice would you give to someone who is thinking about learning Japanese but may be discouraged? Hmm. Well, uh, somebody is kind of vague. Um, if it's someone who has uh, no plans to come to Japan or live in Japan, as opposed to someone who's already living there. Um, someone who's living there, they, they don't want to be an illiterate in the world's most literate country. Yeah. Not to be able to, uh, to read the newspapers or to read the novels or to understand. And in Japanese, you can't speak in Japanese if you can't read. There are just too many times mm. you need the characters in your head. The language is sound poor and full of homonyms. So for someone living in Japan, it's, it seems kind of obvious to me that you should learn to read. Otherwise, you are virtually an illiterate in a very literate country. For others who are just curious about studying it, it all depends on what they want to do with their life. Um, if they need a, a second language for other purposes other than Japanese, well, they could learn that first going through a list of possible courses and trying to decide which elective you want to take. Um, I, I really <laughs> I really don't know how to suggest Japanese over French or German or Croatian or <laughs> Russian. <laughs> yeah. What you said, though, about the homonyms and being able to visualize the word, it definitely, I, I can relate to that because it does come up, especially when I was working and teaching and, and mm. on the JET program, like teaching in an English classroom, because I taught uh -huh. elementary school. So there's a lot more use of Japanese daily because the kids, again, couldn't, ah, yes. you know, mm. in middle school and high school, it's a little bit different. But elementary school, there was a lot more usage. And even the teachers that I taught with mm -hmm. didn't really have a, a strong grasp of Japanese. Uh, well, they had a gra strong grasp of Japanese. They had a strong grasp of mm. uh, English. So we had to communicate one way or the other. Yeah. 
And at the time I had been studying a lot. So see, being able to see those characters in my mind definitely helped with the conversation because mm -hmm. there are some that sound exactly the same, mm -hmm. right? I would, I would just like to add one thing to link the, uh, the kanji books to the Institute because it seems like they're two separate parts of my life. Sure. When the first kanji book came out and we made a, an edition after the, the uh, Adventures in Kanji Land, it sold out so quickly that I decided to take the royalties and to put them into a fund in Chicago. And all the royalties from all the kanji books in all the 11 languages go to that fund. Okay. And that fund sponsors two postdoctoral students at our institutes, resident scholars, with a $28,000 a year scholarship every year. Fantastic. Oh, that's awesome. Great. So if you buy a book, you're also supporting the work of, of the Nansan Institute. So um, I'm, glad I, I'm glad I'm supporting them. <laughs> 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 All right. Well, that, this, is, this has been a lot of fun. I, I learned so much more about like the, the background of the book, like hearing the, the origin mm. story. Of it was so, mm. so cool. You know, I, don't, I have people occasionally who write strange letters to me or, or ask to have an interview about the kanji book, and I never quite know, uh, you know, what the appeal is, because it was just something that happened quite naturally for me. I was once in an airport waiting for a plane, and I was sitting next to a man who was waiting for a plane at the, the next gate, and we were both complaining about how late the planes are getting, and he had a copy of my book sitting on his lap, <laughs> and so I asked him, what's that? And he... <laughs> pressed it to his chest. He said, this is my Bible. And I said, Old Testament or New Testament? No, 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 no. He said, this is, this is a book I carry with me all the time. What is it? He said, well, it's a book about how to learn the Japanese characters. And I said, oh, I said, who wrote it? And he said, a man named uh, Heisig or something. And I said, how do you spell that? Oh, oh, Heisig. He said, yeah. He said, you know him? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, tell me, tell me something about him. And I said, well, it's it's a good book. Oh, yes, yes, it's a really good book. Well, you know, you don't really want to know about him. He said, yes, I do. I said, well, he's, he's a little strange. He's kind of been in and out of institutions most of his life. But it's probably a really good book, and I recommend you <laughs> stick with it. He said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, his, his roof is not too tightly thatched. I mean, I've heard all sorts of stories about him, but don't, don't let it bother you. He <laughs> kind of got very withdrawn, quiet. And after a few minutes, he said, would you watch my luggage? I'm going to the restroom. And I picked up his book and opened it in the middle and signed it and wished him good wishes. Oh. <laughs> did you ever tell him that you were that you were the author? Or did, uh, did he, he found it, I think, when he got to that page in the book. I, oh, nice. I mentioned it. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> all right. Well, we don't, we don't want to take up too much more of your day. And, and we appreciate all the time you've given to us. So... Um, I did want to give you one last opportunity if you have any upcoming books coming out or conferences or anything that you want to just kind of bring to the attention of our listeners, um, something to look out for, uh, anything really. Let's see. We're working on a new edition of the of the kanji books in Ukrainian. Oh, wow. Uh -huh. Okay. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. That's nice. Awesome. The, the latest book I wrote is a little book I wrote during the pandemic as news was reaching us from America mainly. A little book called In Praise of Civility. But that's the latest thing I've written now. Okay. still working at other things now. More philosophical. That's... But that's kind of a light book. Okay. I'll Full to, of stories. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we'll definitely, definitely link. Well, we're going to put links to your books 
in our mm. show notes. So that way, if people are interested after hearing the stories you had today, good. Um, interested good. in pursuing this, they, they have a way to find it. Great. So we'll make sure we I'm drop that in there I'm afraid I didn't give you all very much time to uh, to talk. I just chattered away. So, sometimes for us, That's, no, yeah, no one wants to hear us. <laughs> no one wants to hear us. No one wants to hear us. They just want to hear the, they want to hear you guys. They want to hear you. So, <laughs> so, so thank you again for joining us. This was uh, so you. much fun. And uh, we'll push people towards your book, you know, and then hopefully they take away, they find the discipline within to, uh, <laughs> to continue to the end. <laughs> All right. Thank you. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in to Crew of Japan podcast. A special thank you to Dr. Jim Heisig for joining Jennifer and I for that episode. Honestly, I could just sit back and listen to more stories like that for hours. And Jim made some incredibly valid points when it came to how the brain processes information, especially pertaining to kanji and retention. Hopefully this episode gave you some new ideas to work into your Japanese study plan. Or maybe it'll inspire you to start down your own path towards learning written Japanese. Maybe you're not ready for kanji yet. Apparently hiragana can be learned in three hours from what we just heard. Whatever the case may be, just remember to approach at your own speed because everyone learns at their own pace. Have you attempted the Heisig method? How do you feel about studying kanji? Share with us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and TikTok and YouTube at Career Japan Podcast. That's K-R-E-W-E-O-F-J-A-P-A-N. So on Twitter at Crew of Japan. Instagram and TikTok is at Crew of Japan Podcast. Facebook, just search the name. And same thing for YouTube as well. While you're there, give us a follow, a like, retweet, repost, share, whatever floats your boat. Just let us know how you're enjoying the podcast. Or maybe you'd like to provide your feedback in a more private setting. Shoot us an email at crewofjapanpodcast at gmail.com. I'll spell that one more time. K-R-E-W-E-O-F-J-A-P-A-N-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. Speaking of feedback, if you're enjoying what you're listening to right now or in our previous episodes or previous season, please feel free to leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast streaming app. As always, any and all support is incredibly appreciated. But that's it for today. Until next time. <laughs>